What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to another episode of FedWatch. As always, I'm here with Ansel Lindner, and we have a treat for you guys. This is an inspirational and absolutely fiery podcast with the great Max Kaiser. Um, Ansel, what do you think of this one? Oh, man, I remember uh, going to one of my first Bitcoin meetups, and Max Kaiser, his content was, um, you know, we were discussing Max Kaiser's show. So he has been around since the beginning. He's influenced me and my friends, early friends in Bitcoin. So yeah, wow, what what an honor to interview him. It was great. Uh, so many insights here, so much history. Um, just like Stacy, Max is an amazing storyteller. He um, can call back to historical events and historical moments just in a moment's notice uh, and really makes for a fantastic podcast and fantastic education. Um, so I think you guys are really going to like this one. A lot of great sound bites in here. Uh, the orange pill lifestyle, y'all, that's a new one. And I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be uh, throwing that one around, but yeah. You can get red pilled, but orange pill is a lifestyle. Orange pill is the action of living that way and being optimistic and using Bitcoin. So, uh, guys, make sure to listen to this podcast. Make sure to follow Max and make sure to check out our sponsor. This is Blockstacks. This is Stacks 2.0. Uh, this is a blockchain that enables you to do all of the decentralized things that other blockchains are advertising, but it is built with Bitcoin and using Bitcoin as the native currency. Uh, even when you support Blockstacks with STX staking, you get paid out in BTC rewards on the Blockstacks blockchain. So make sure to go check out Blockstacks. Again, stacks2.com. That's the best place to learn about all of the capabilities on the Blockstacks blockchain and learn how you can get paid in BTC for supporting a decentralized alternative to a lot of the apps that are out there. That's stacks2.com. That is enough from me. Enjoy this podcast with Max Kaiser. <laughs> Bitcoiners. I am thrilled to bring you this episode of FedWatch. We are joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Max Kaiser. Um, Ansel, Max, how's it going, guys? It's going great, man. Thanks for having me on. It's going great. I am. We are in the presence of greatness. I've been watching Max for probably eight to ten years. Uh, we interviewed Stacy earlier, and uh, this is an honor for me. Welcome to show, Max. You know, it's exciting times, and um, I'm really excited to be uh, to be a part of it. You know, uh, I think I'm one of the very few boomers that are so actively involved with uh, Bitcoin. You know, I see some of these other people, these other boomers make comments about Bitcoin. It's embarrassing for me as a fellow boomer how dumb they are. Yeah, well, uh, I do a lot of talking with another boomer who really gets Bitcoin well, and that's Bitcoin Tina. So uh, not all the boomers are dumb. And uh, one of Bitcoin Tina's points is that don't underestimate the boomers because they're going to get it eventually and they're going to be buying Bitcoin hand over fist. Yeah, true. There's a lot of buying power there. So yeah, he's right. I have to agree with that. We wanted to kind of start off and uh, I thought a really good question, since a lot of people already know your history, is I want to know what would 2021 orange-pilled Max tell to pre-Bitcoin Max, a Max who obviously, you know, kind of already knew that a bunch was amiss, but uh, maybe hadn't, you know, just, you know, experienced Bitcoin quite yet. 
Right. Well, you know, my history goes back to the uh, long time, actually, because on Wall Street in the 80s, when I was a stockbroker, was the beginning of a lot of financial innovation. It was Michael Milken and junk bonds and a lot of structured products were invented at that time because discount brokerages led by Charles Schwab came into existence. So Wall Street had to come up with some competing products. And that's when I started my career on Wall Street in 1982 uh, during this really explosion in, in products and new products. And, and uh, this idea really that um, you started to see how securities were broken up and sold into separate packages. You know, you, you sold the interest separate from the corpus, you know, from the bond is separate from the interest. And, you know, this led to all kinds of interesting things, you know, credit default swaps, derivatives. Um, th- th- it was the beginning, really, of when finance just totally left any connection to fundamental valuation, right? So in 1971, the U.S. went off the gold standard. And so by the mid-1980s, uh, with Reagan in office, all the deregulation that went on. And so you really had a total disconnect between valuation for securities and any underlying fundamental valuation. Uh, and since interest rates have gone down to zero, that trend has gotten even more ludicrous to, you know, you saw what happened to GameStop uh, stock in the past week and how that's being bounced around by people with unlimited credit. There's no uh, way to value these securities because interest rates are zero, et cetera. So then flash forward to 1990s. I started a company called the Hollywood Stock Exchange. I have a patent on a virtual currency. Um, this is a market-making technology for virtual security and virtual um, money. And so that was my first really deep dive into the architecture and technology of a virtual currency. And uh, I learned a lot from that experience when I was running the Hollywood Stock Exchange, how virtual currencies would interact in an economy, in an environment, how people respond to them, how it was obvious to me that people responded to virtual money the same way they responded to any other form of money. So there was no difference, really, uh, in people's minds. And this is where all the action in virtual currencies and Bitcoin takes place is in people's minds, right? Because what makes money it depends on what people think. And if people think that Bitcoin is money, then it's money. And uh, then you get deeper into it. And it, that, that, that idea is, is strengthened by many, many, many layers that you can go, you can go into it. So uh, flash forward to 2011, when I first heard about Bitcoin. So then I was like, oh, okay, this is, I see, you know, uh, this is instead of a centralized uh, digital scarcity, which is what I had more or less invented in 1996. Uh, this, was a dis- this was a distributed uh, decentralized scarcity, right? So that's, that's the key difference with Bitcoin. So, um, and, uh, you know, you can get down the list, many other aspects to it are revolutionary. So uh, that's what got me immediately interested in it. So I just started to, uh, to, to just promote it on the show, talk about it on the show. Uh, there's also with Max and Stacy for almost 20 years now, we've been doing battle with bankers and central bankers and fiat money. Even before Bitcoin, you know, we were always attacking the central bankers and the fiat money pushers and the, and the bankers. So when uh, in 2011, when Bitcoin came around, not only was it a continuation of the digital currency story, but it was also now a new way to do battle against the central bankers. And now we're seeing it today because central bankers like the um, the, the central banker at the Bank of England this week making comments at, at Davos that, um, 
you know, the, the, he's really getting flustered and um, they're, they're worrying about this and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Christine Lagarde is worried about it. So this is, this is the political edge to it. I mean, there is a political edge to it, to Bitcoin, which I think is not either it's not talked about a lot or that conversation is going to be dominated by the opposition. So the people who are against Bitcoin are going to start positioning Bitcoin in political terms and to paint Bitcoiners in unflattering, politically charged ways like being, quote, anti-American or anti-freedom or whatever, you know, the. So I think that's going to we're going to see that in 2021. So that's kind of a long answer, but hopefully uh, that answers the question. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, uh, you definitely gave us a very good insight into your history and why you're primed to understand Bitcoin effectively immediately. Um, but, you know, in terms of this idea of like people being orange pilled, like Bitcoin really opens people's eyes. I'm curious, like you were you were kind of already pre orange pilled, like have you been further orange pilled and uh, has have you like learned more that you would uh, love to communicate to kind of like past Max? I think Bitcoin is like the beginning of the end of um, humans consciousness that we've experienced since the beginning of our species, that we've always been frustrated by an inability to communicate. And markets and price signals were a great leap forward in helping humans communicate over distances and over time. And we call that globalization or we call that society. We even sometimes call that religion, right? Religion is just price signals and ceremonies and rituals to try to enhance communication because humans are social animals and they want to communicate with with perfect money which bitcoin is it's the end of that struggle we are now entering a period of perfect uh communication uh, almost um almost uh you know entering that hive mind that people talk about and it, it's a profoundly changed experience for for humans as a species we're, we're entering into a new epoch as as a species so um to be alive at that time is is incredible um, be, be, when you think about the history us humans have been through, it's not a huge history. If you look at the history of our planet and the history of the solar system and the history of the universe, it's, we've only been here for a very, very, very short period of time. And it's been mostly a struggle. But I think that struggle is about to, about to end because every 10 minutes, every single thought, which is now priced in Bitcoin, is synced up and audited in a block. And we're born again every 10 minutes. Born again every 10 minutes. Everything is completely audited and, and synced and communication is set every 10 minutes. There's no legacy. There's no, there's no legacy in the sense of a legacy in, in a technological sense. There's no lag to the communication. There's no, you know, the, the telephone, the telegraph, they were great ways to make things, the, the communication more in sync. But still, there's tremendous lag of meaning and consciousness and syntax and verbiage and just the way people talk. I mean, even within... It's very, very small groups of people. You can find incredibly divergent understanding of what is actually being said to who and why. And Bitcoin fixes all that because all of our thoughts are going to be priced in Bitcoin. It's frictionless. It's free to, tr it's, it's the, the language the mind uses to speak to itself. It's metaphysics and, and philosophy monetized in a way that we're going to take this huge evolutionary leap. And a lot of people are just not going to make that leap and they will just be left behind. And a lot of people are taking that leap. I'm, I'm, I'm living the orange pilled life 
I feel as though I've got one foot in the future already. You know, I was always a great student of metaphysics and physics, and uh, I'm a big fan of Carl Jung and the idea of synchronicity, and I'm a big fan of Alan Watts, and and I'm a big fan of kind of this idea of uh, global, the, the, uh, the universal unconscious mind and things like this. And what's been lacking is the hardest money ever, perfect money, you know, and it's this is what we're on the verge of right now. I truly believe this to be the case. That was awesome. Um, very big picture stuff there. Um, going from the very big picture down a little bit smaller of just the global economy as it is it exists today. I was hoping that you could give us uh, some of your kind of basic themes of what you see uh, going on in the economy. I mean, obviously, we went from the global financial crisis to 2020. And now 2021, and, and of course, Bitcoin's in there. But uh, what do you see are the overarching themes in 2021 right now? Right. So there's the three D's, deglobalization, de-dollarization, and depopulation. So with deglobalization, it started with Trump. You know, when he came into office, he said, I'm not a globalist, and uh, it's America first. And I think this set off really a period where pe- countries are really thinking more in terms of their own self-interest and less in the globalized sense. And um, so we're back to more of a mercantilist global economy where countries are really battling each other for supremacy in somewhat of a zero-sum game. And uh, the instruments and organizations of globalization, I think, will become less and less important. And uh, we see this type of splintering and fracturing everywhere. You know, you have Brexit going on. The UK left the EU and Scotland's probably going to leave the the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland could join up with the Republic of Ireland. And um, you just and, and the US and China seem to be more on an aggressive, belligerent, the uh, uh, confrontational uh, stance at these days. So I, I think the globalization period, we go to deglobalization. I think that's that's going to be a big theme. It's a very hostile environment. And uh, obviously with the COVID crisis, it it exacerbates this theme. You know, uh, when, when COVID hit, it was kind of like World War II. Remember World War II, the United States was uniquely positioned to come out of that war in a very, very good shape. It, it escaped uh, the ravages that we saw in Europe. The economy was intact and we had great manufacturing capacity and we went on to the American century. You know, we were, quote, the winner of World War II. And the COVID crisis is, is this huge crisis. And it appears that though China will be the winner of that crisis because, for you know, the fact is that that authoritarian regime was able to lock people down uh, and, and, you know, the economy is going to grow this year and it's back up and running. Essentially, the U.S. is still struggling with it because it just never the U.S. never really was able to to respond. You know, the U.S. couldn't even manufacture masks. Right. So, I mean, the U.S. is, is struggling. So it, it, it's kind of like it was a loser in the covid lottery would be the U.S. The winner in the covid lottery was China. So I think that's can I add something too. yeah. We we let China, uh, the U.S. let China set the precedence too. Like the precedence and the strategy was set by China, and they were much better suited to play that game than the U.S. Um, the shutdown, lockdown game is better suited for an authoritarian. You could say, "All right, we're opening up now." Whereas the U.S., like now, you're seeing the politics play into it. How you know it, it's become muddied up with so much other BS. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. So I'm not saying that they're better or worse or we're better or worse. But at the point, just to emphasize what you're saying there, it's like it was like they won that lottery and we lost that lottery. You know, they, they just have their their systems were prepared. And also they had a few uh, of these um viruses before but they had the SARS virus and they've had several viruses like they've already had they've gone through several uh drills you know the US has hadn't had a virus like this since uh 2018 or 2019 right the last big virus in the US the the flu pandemic so we had we had not really prepared for it there wasn't it wasn't really on anyone's radar when it hit whereas China had already two or three examples of this so so deglobalization then we move on to de-dollarization so de-dollarization the U.S. dollar, like all reserve currencies, you know, they last about 100 years and then they lose their place as world reserve currency. We've seen that over the past five, 600 years, starting with Portugal and the age of globalization and, and Columbus. They had the first kind of world reserve currency, then it moved on to Spain and France and the Netherlands and England, and then finally the U.S. post-World War One. But now I think uh, the U.S. dollar is at the end of its run as world reserve currency. Uh, countries are already trading bilaterally without the U.S. dollar. And um, the ability to operate outside the dollar using Bitcoin now has opened up avenues for, as Christine Lagarde has said, escape valve away from the U.S. dollar. So uh, there's a lot of reasons to, to go into that. So there's a de-dollarization going on. Uh, and then depopulation. This is really fascinating. We had a guest on Kaiser Report last year who brought up, when I asked him, what's the basis for negative interest rates? Because we've never seen it in history, negative interest rates. And he said he thought it could, it could be depopulation. So in other words, the markets are discounting mechanisms. They tend to discount future events. So these negative rates were telling us two, three, four years in advance of the trend of depopulation uh, in that um, the, the bond market had was was telling us something and now what we're seeing with with covid you know is that uh we're seeing some depopulation going on uh wh where how far this goes how to what extent uh you know i saw a report this week from one of the um major global ngos saying that the rate of extreme poverty in the world is now starting to race higher for the first time in two or three decades right so um the the negative rates were telling us that the 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 world was way over leveraged and much too fragile and that that's what and and, and so what we could have done if we were reading markets and got those signals correctly was to start to reverse that problem but instead as in all ponzi schemes the tendency is to just keep doubling down on the Ponzi scheme. And even today in, in the U.S., the new administration, what we're hearing about it so far is that they're just going to keep doubling down on this Ponzi scheme. They're not going to address any of the fundamental foundational problems at all. They're just going to keep doubling down on money printing and all, all, the, uh, all the problems that have gotten us to this, this point at this time. So those are my big three, the big three D themes of 2021. 
Yeah, and uh, matches with another D as well, demographics, because, uh, you know, as all these countries, even China now is in a bad demographic uh, shape in Europe. Um, I, I would say the U.S. is probably the best demographics out of these major economies, but uh, that fits with your deglobalization as a trade go uh, lessens or slows down around the world, then you have... Uh, you know, you can't support as many people because the economy is shrinking and also the demographic structure. So yeah, that's really good uh, depopulation. So um, moving on to the next thing, um, this kind of ties in with the end of the dollar system. And there's, on this show, we talk a lot about inflation versus deflation. And we try to be as skeptical as possible about the quote unquote money printing about, um, you know, we have Jeff Schneider, who's a big Euro dollar person and he makes a great argument for deflation um, and the kind of idea of QE and fiscal stimulus being money printing is a very good argument as well. So I know that one of my favorite uh, coined terms of yours is cantillionaire. So uh, where, (laughs) so where do you fall on this uh, inflation deflation kind of credit boom? Are we going into a credit bust? Is that deflationary? I'm, you know, how can you flesh that out for us? As much as you right. Can. So uh, under Clinton, you know, uh, we had China join the World Trade Organization and all that. And so America essentially exported its inflation, you know, to China. Right. So we were the beneficiaries to the extent that we were getting a lot of cheap stuff, cheap TVs, cheap clothes. So even though wages in America were going down, the cost of a lot of stuff was going down even more. So the quality of life didn't really appear to be getting horrible or going appreciably worse because even though the purchasing power of the dollar was fading, you could buy more with it because it was cheaper because it was being made in China where, you know, you have slave wages. So that is now finished because the wages and the China economy and the growth has reached parity with the U.S. and it's fact that it's moving beyond the U.S. So we're not going to have the benefit of that cheap prices anymore. And due to de-dollarization, countries like China that have you know, trillions of dollars worth of reserves in other countries are going to be dumping dollars. They're going to send them back to where they came from, and that is the U.S. So now, after this, you could call it a deflationary period driven by the virtually free labor of China and the manufacturing economy and the ease of credit for people to consume on credit, you now are going to see a kind of a tsunami of dollars roll back into the U.S. uh, as these countries dump their dollars, and they're doing it right now. And in response to that dollar dumping, the central bank is aggressively accumulating them to try to mitigate the inflationary impact this might have. And so their balance sheet is swelling up by trillions of dollars. And um, But there is a there is a limit to how much you can hide the uh, the uh, the supply of paper money in the system uh, from reaching down into the actual prices of day-to-day goods and services that people are starting to notice. Uh, the commodities are now in a um, bull market, a secular bull market. So with the, the, for agriculturals and things like this, their prices are going up. Uh, we already have a period of shrinkflation where the effects of inflation were hidden by giving people smaller portions. You know, the average size of a, 
of a, of a Milky Way bar has been shrinking over the past 10 years. It, the price hasn't gone up, but the, 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 the size of the item keeps shrinking. It's called shrinkflation. And same thing with uh, laundry detergent or, you know, you find that the packages are smaller, right? And you're saying, well, I'm, I'm not paying any more for it. Well, you are on a per unit basis because it's getting smaller. So and, and all the statistical reporting on inflation by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, of course, always reports on those things that are being exported from China as their gauge of inflation. They don't count education or or uh, health care or housing. So if you were to create an index based on the stuff that people actually consume over the past 10 years, the prices are up on average over 50% a year. That's the true actual rate that people are paying. Anyone who pays for uh, medical for, for um, medical or education um, knows that the numbers being reported by the U.S. of of one and a half to two percent inflation do not make any make any sense in terms of what the actual day to day experience is for people in, interacting with the economy. So they've used all these different tricks to hide it, hide the impact. Why do they do that? Because first of all, there's the uh, cost of living adjustments that they don't want to have to pay for people living on Social Security and things like that. So the government doesn't want to have to actually report true inflation because they would have to start paying out more for the COLA adjustments, the cost of living adjustments, which they don't want to do. And number two, the banks are insolvent. The big banks in America are insolvent, and the debt load that they carry is beyond any... It's it's an insolvency situation, and so... To pretend that these banks are not insolvent, they have to keep these rates artificially low, near zero, so that these banks don't have to admit the fact that they're insolvent and all their friends would lose their jobs. So the, 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 the central bank must, must keep printing all this money, and the, 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 the reason they give for it is that they fear that, that they're fighting deflation, that's what they say they're doing. Um, but they're actually causing the deflation. That, that's what they're causing. They're not fighting it. They're causing it by um, crowding out the viable portions of the economy that could be producing real GDP growth. They're doing it by loading up the system with more debt because all money is debt. Uh, it says right there on your U.S. dollar, it says this is a note from the federal government. A note is a, another, is a synonym for debt. It's a short-term debt is a note, right? It's just debt. Um, if they wanted to bring back inflation for real and if they wanted to fix this economy for real, you know, within the tools of the government and the central bank, they would jack interest rates up to 5% overnight. That would weed out all the bad actors. It would restore the integrity in the dollar. It would favor savings. And you can't have capitalism without capital. And you can't have capital without a rate of interest that you're being paid for to hold capital. That that's, should be pretty obvious. But the, the, none of the policymakers want to acknowledge any of this. So they say they're fighting deflation, but they're actually causing deflation. This, But I, I, the dam is about to break, though, because... You know, it's like uh, it's like the federal government is like an alcoholic, basically, and they hide those bottles of booze in the house, right? <laughs> and they can pretend like they're not an alcoholic for only so long. 
But eventually all those bottles that they've hidden the booze in the house, they start rattling around a bit. And they, they, they can't make their payments and they lose their house and they're on the street. The cities are breaking down. Poverty rates escalating. At some point, you got to come to terms with the fact that, hey, America, you're fucking bankrupt. You know, you can't pretend like you're not a debt-aholic bum living on the handouts from China, essentially. You know, if, if, the, if the China wasn't sending us all these cheap goods for our shit money, we would be completely in the third world right now. So they're not doing anything to stop that. They're just doubling down on all these horrible policies. So this is what Bitcoin is, is calling time on this. Bitcoin is saying, time out. We don't believe a word you're saying. That's why this thing's going higher. That's what Michael Saylor is doing. Michael Saylor is saying, you know what? I could play their game, borrow money and buy back my own stock at MicroStrategy, get myself some executive stock options and make a couple of billion dollars. But he's saying, no, I believe the inflation genie is coming out of the bottle and I'm going to not make two or three billion dollars. I'm going to make 200 billion dollars like Jeff Bezos by borrowing that money with a speculative attack. And I'm going to buy Bitcoin and watch it go to 200, 300, 400,000 a coin. And I don't care what happens to the U.S. economy. You know, this is he's throwing down the gauntlet. Jeff Saylor, it's it's an incredible thing that he's done. He's essentially told the Federal Reserve Bank to go fuck themselves. And he said that even those exact words last last week on uh, in an interview. He said, if somebody wants my Bitcoin, they can go fuck themselves. I mean, this is from a CEO, a publicly listed company with billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, who's telling every other CEO in America to do the exact same thing. This is an insurrection. And thank God somebody manned up and took on these terrorists at at the central bank jabo right jabo exactly so to drill into this china thing because this is one of the things that i think about all the time and there's a lot of people that you know the you guys talk a lot about the thucydides trap and the rise of china and the decline of the west and the decline of the u.s um do you think china has it uh has the possibility to become a global hegemon and maybe it's like their time they're rising right now, but we talked, you talked about the three D's. So they're rising right when the three D's are kind of uh, wrecking the world for them. So um, how do you picture this uh, rise of China, the new China century, something like that? Can you comment on that? Right. So um, I remember back in the eighties when I was on wall street, there was at that time, the idea was the rising power of Japan that Japan was going to take over. And remember, the Nikkei average was at 40,000. The uh, Imperial Palace, real estate of the Imperial Palace was worth more than the state of California. You know, some crazy thing. They were buying Pebble Beach Golf Club, Radio City Music Hall, Rockefeller Center. And China, Japan was, was going to take over the world. And then the Internet hit. And America reasserted its dominance because the Internet favored, Amer again, the lottery wheel was spun, the Internet was created, and America was uniquely positioned to benefit from the Internet because you had all these entrepreneurs who took the Internet like wildfire and just invented business models and invented all these crazy things. And, we, and they reasserted America's global dominance, whereas Japan, because it's, their society is more conformist. And it's groupthink, and it's very um, 
it's it's organized at the manufacturing level and they were putting out cars cheap and kicking Detroit's ass. But when the inter- internet hit, they couldn't transition. They couldn't shift. They, it, it was, it was not something that the Japanese society, Japanese culture was able to adapt and the U S reasserted itself. So, okay, here we are in 2021. Now another Asian country, China is like, okay, um, we are positioned to take over as global hegemon. The U.S. is getting its ass kicked by COVID, as everybody else is. We're coming out of this COVID crisis in the best shape. And we've got great relationships with all these different countries. And we're trading bilaterally outside of the U.S. dollar. And uh, so what, what could be the counterbalance to that? And the answer could be Bitcoin. So uh, I noticed, by the way, that um, there's a huge new Bitcoin mining pool in Texas. Um, the Bitcoin mining pools and the Bitcoin mining industry is actually migrating away from Asia. It looks like it's coming to the U.S., which is a great thing for the U.S. Uh, the energy costs here are very competitive. And um, that that could be the only saving grace for the U.S. If, if, if we go toward a more Bitcoin standard for the global economy, the U.S. could be in a position to reassert its dominance if it gets on the Bitcoin bandwagon as soon as possible. Because China, again, just the culture and society and the authoritarianism of China, thats they're not going to take the Bitcoin because it's what? Decentralized. There's no no way to control it, essentially. So China's economy, obviously, is incredibly top-down command and control and having the idea of a currency outside of the control of the of the government is they're going to reject that but in the u.s actually it does it plays to our frontier mentality better so bitcoin you know it it, it could be but you know you, you would need uh, it, it could happen without and any participation in, in Washington at all. I mean, the, it's like Michael Saylor could, could band together with 30 or 40 other CEOs and effectively just put, put the government out of business, you know, just defund the government. They're, gonna, they're not going to have any money because fiat money is becoming worthless. And it's well, going to be in the hands of 20 or 30 Bitcoin gazillionaires are going to be in a position to re, restart the economy from scratch. But fine. That's, I mean, that's, that's, the way, that's the way it should, that's the way it should be. Max, you're kind of reminding me of a Pierre uh, Pierre Richard kind of like tweet rant uh, where he was trying to convince uh, the U.S. government to stop selling Bitcoin for dollars because he's like, why would you sell precious Bitcoins for something you can just make infinitely on your own as it is? Like, how stupid do you have to be? Like, you better hold this thing for your own sake. Uh, yeah, couldn't agree more. You know, Pierre Richard, one of the best guys on Twitter, and um, he's absolutely correct. And it's it's tragic that the U.S. would sell their Bitcoin to, um, to to you know venture capitalists in San Francisco. Tim Draper, I think, won the auction for U.S. Bitcoin. Had a huge Bitcoin position. That, that those are strategic national assets of, of that we as taxpaying citizens should be owning. You know, we shouldn't they shouldn't be giving it away. It's uh, it's like um, it's tragic. And but so so right now the mindset. And the current administration is more toward money printing, MMT, 
right? They they really they more command and control. Um, they seem to instead of competing with China, they seem to emulate China, right? So China's really they're they're real they're the the surveillance state of China is horrible, right? Because everything is tied to your social credit score, and if you don't go along with what the government is saying, you get degraded. And suddenly you can't get on an airplane, you can't get a train ticket, your mortgage rates go up. So it's it's totally dystopian in that in, in what's going on. And the US looks at that and says, Wow, we want we want that's what we want. You know, that's not what we want. And we don't have to go down that path. It's like the US I remember after nine eleven, people were saying the reason it happened was a lack of imagination. Like nobody had ever thought this could ever be so. Even though there had been like five or six Hollywood movies with that exact same plot already, right? It's not that people hadn't imagined that was going to happen. It's that the people in charge are fucking stupid, right? So they, they, they shouldn't be in power for 20, 30, 40 years. They're, uh, they're impaired. They're cognitive impaired, not just at the, in the White House, but all across Congress and the Senate. You got some really, you got some fucked up people there that can't even, they, Jerry Nadler keeps pooping himself in public. That guy should not be in public office. He needs to be in an assisted living facility, right? That's not what, was, what we want in office. Uh, so, you know, uh, we need to uh, scorch earth it. You know, get rid of it all. With Bitcoin, you can do that. Just restart the whole thing from scratch. You know, Americans will love that in the end, you know, because we're hardy. You know, we don't give a shit. We've got our guns, our Bitcoin, and our canned beans. Just give us a good government and we're fine. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard famously said that uh, Washington was like high school because they're all so immature and they don't know what's going on. They're not experts in anything. They're just public. You know, they, they knew how to win the election. That's about it. Right. I also I heard you know Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. <laughs> well, uh, also the U.S. will be I think will benefit from having GBTC headquartered here, having um, Coinbase headquartered here, having the miners like you said. Um, so it seems like that would be you know capital will go to where it's treated best. So all they need to do is just not get in the way and not uh, treat it too harshly. And yeah, Bitcoin, I think, will continue to be centered around the U.S. Uh, going forward. That's my idea. It, it, it could be. It could be. I hope so. I think there's a lot of talent, a lot of capital. And, um, you know, it's um, we have some interesting situations happening around the world. So in Nigeria, which has 200 million people, something like 30 percent of the population is already using Bitcoin. And it, the demographics are very, very young. And they've already kind of leapfrogged to hyper-Bitcoinization. And uh, they, uh, they're on a great path in terms of Bitcoin. You've got other countries like Iran, which is they're mining Bitcoin and, and apparently and, and storing Bitcoin, right? They're, they're realized that this is a way out of U.S. dollar hegemony. Obviously, that's a huge political a situation, you know, you can dig into the politics of it, but the fact is, this is what they're doing, um, and and um, so these uh, different countries are taking this approach. So I think, like I've said uh, a couple of years ago, it introduces the idea of a hash race or a hash war, where like the U.S. had that Sputnik moment where they're like, oh my God, uh, the Soviet Union just put a, a satellite into space. You know, we got to get into the space race. 
And uh, that was a great, great thing for the U.S. because it gave us a goal. You know, Americans need a goal. You know, we need to think like get out of our shit and just think of a goal. Put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Everyone was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Right? It's like, so uh, if we were to articulate this and say we need to own, you know, we need to have 20% of the hash rate by the end of the decade or something like that and and just go for that goal, This the result would be reestablishing U.S. global dominance and uh, it would it would uh, that would that's that's the policy that needs to be implemented. So I want to jump in here and talking about deglobalization, kind of like these jurisdictions competing with each other. Um, it really kind of yields its hand to the the idea of like sovereign individuals and sovereign companies and people who leverage uh, geographical arbitrage in order to, you know, kind of be in the nicest place possible and then uh, serve the entire globe via the internet. Uh, we're seeing Miami start to like compete in the US. I think one of the things that makes the US actually competitive is the states. The fact that there's literally geographical arbitrage built into the country is one of the biggest advantages that the US has that no one, you know, really has a similar kind of footing there. Um, so, I mean, what do you think about like this idea of jurisdictional arbitrage and how people can leverage Bitcoin and leverage the internet and leverage these competing jurisdictions in order to, you know, change the, the world and change how we organize. Right. Well, you see in Wyoming, right? Caitlin Long and then people in Wyoming, they're making Wyoming a Bitcoin friendly state. They've got uh, a senator now uh, who's also lobbying for Bitcoin. So Wyoming is already on that path. And uh, you're right in that the states do have this jurisdictional arbitrage going on. We saw this with uh, medical marijuana, right? So one or two states started it, then it spread to other states, and at some point it'll be a federal law. But right now the federal law doesn't sync up with some of the states, but the states are pressuring. Um, I think that was also, you know, we've seen that in, in the past. So if if one or two states go down the Bitcoin path and suddenly they're booming, you know, and it's and they're it's working, and other it spreads to other states. Then they have the ability to lobby the federal government and make it more of a federal law. But I, I agree with you that is that is a strong, a very strong part of of what we have going here: the separation of powers. And you see that between states and the feds. You see that within the government itself, with the various uh, houses of government, et cetera, checks and balances. So that there is there is there is an excellent quality there for sure. Well, let's talk about even more like from a global perspective, because I think that's even more interesting, right? Like the breakup of states and then state competition. I feel like that's uh, that has, you know, really big macro implications. Oh, yeah. Um, like we've been saying, I think you're going to get into a hash war or hash race where the right now the talk is regulating Bitcoin and how are we going to regulate Bitcoin? And I think it's going to flip. And I think it's going to be the states are going to be like, how do we get more into Bitcoin? So it's going to be like a 180 degree flip, you know, polar flip. It's just going to be like, wait a minute, we're thinking about this all wrong. And it'll happen because a state like Iran will suddenly have the hardest money in the world because they've got so much Bitcoin. And then the U.S. and these other countries would be like, well, how the fuck did that happen? And they'll be like, "Uh oh, wait a minute. We better get in this game. So it's game theory and it's played out on the macro level. So we've seen game theory is baked into the protocol. 
right? January 3rd, 2009, the Genesis block, boom, all the game theory was already baked in. And it was played out in the mining space. It's played out in the altcoin space. It's now it's being played out on the sovereign space and the nation state level, the central bank level. It's being played out at the biggest possible level. We knew it was going to come to this. You know, it's we knew Christine Lagarde would have to make a comment and Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England would have to make a comment and Jerome Powell and all these people would have to start talking about it because it was baked into the cake. It's baked into the protocol. And we know the outcome. We know where this is going. Uh, it's you can't beat it, so you either accept it or you get blo- you get trashed. Right? You don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. You see this on the money management level. So some money managers, like I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Peter Schiff, but you know he simply is somebody who is fighting reality. You know, the reality is that this protocol is eating the world. It's eating fiat money. It's eating it's eating gold. You know, it's taking spotlight away from gold. And for so many reasons that you could just like it's you can't really pretend you don't understand it anymore. So he's just not adapted. Just, you know, it's going to he's it's history is going to pass him by. And and same thing with uh, Rubini and Paul Krugman and people. They're they're just they they don't they're going to be they're just dinosaurs. They're just they're just not going to they're not going to come to the table. Some of them, even Michael Saylor in 2013, he was a Bitcoin skeptic, and then the the fork wars of 2017 flipped him, and he was like, "Wait a minute, I get it. You know, there really is." anti-fragility here it really is immutable you know it really is everything these guys are saying it is and it, and if that's true then i gotta own it so he but some people are just never ever gonna they'll go to their grave complaining about bitcoin you know bitcoin will be at a million dollars a coin and that'll be on peter schiff's epitaph here lies peter schiff he never bought bitcoin the end Oh man, that's great. Um, what do you think about CBDC? So maybe the 180 degree shift will be from when they try to do a CBDC and they cause hyperinflation in their country, like the ECB or some, somebody tries to do this. And, um, so that kind of wrecks their currency and they're forced to make 180 degree shift back to Bitcoin. Right. They will come out with their digital currencies and which is just reinventing fiat money, but there's no difference. The, the euro is already a central bank digital currency. So what, what, what's the difference? It's a centrally controlled digital money that they already, there's already quadrillions of it out there. You know, there, there's more than a quadrillion, quite literally, of derivatives and fiat money and digital money and non, it doesn't, it's all nonsense. So they, they'll come up with a, you know, what, what they're saying, like Venezuela just said this, right? They're going to go, they're going to remove all paper money. It's not that they're creating anything new with a central bank digital currency. What's new is that they're going to remove paper money. So that removes some privacy. And that's heinous. That's anti-human rights. That's a human rights abuse. When you impinge on privacy by eliminating anonymous paper money. And so, and that's, that is tragic in so many ways so you know bitcoin obviously is not centralized it's decentralized and so these they don't compete and it's a place for them 
they want to, they have to sound like they're doing something. But even though it's, it's, they're not really doing anything except becoming more draconian and, and more of abusive toward human rights. That's the only thing they're doing. It's just government's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more invasive and bureaucratic. And, um, we know that it doesn't work. Uh, so I don't see, it's not, it's just, it's just a place that they, they have to appear to do something. You know, I, I, the politicians have to appear to be doing something. That's why they, they, they build, you know, a bridge to nowhere, right? You know, remember that story from a few years ago, it's a bridge that went nowhere, right? But they, they were able to say they were doing something, right? We're, you know, it's completely counterproductive. It's a complete waste of money. I mean, the whole Vietnam War was a bridge to nowhere. It was completely ill-fated from day one. They wasted 50,000 American lives, 58,000 American lives. There was never, ever going to be a win in that situation. It was just uh, politicians wanting to appear to be doing something and and, and not having the, uh, you know, um, humility to, to come out and say, we, we made a mistake. We need to get out. You know, they, it, it, they had to go through the whole exercise of being, getting their asses kicked by a guerrilla army in the fricking jungle over many years before they find, and then they couldn't take it. So they had uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, reinvent the whole Vietnam war. And this time America won. If you remember uh, the first blood movies, uh, you know, this is anyone born after, you know, in the 1980s or so, they would think that America won that war based on all the Hollywood movies uh, that came out, kind of reinventing and re-narrating that whole thing. But I was alive during the time, and I can tell you that it was a very messed up situation. Uh, it, you know, the president resigned and, uh, the people, it was messed up, you know, even as messed up as things are now, I don't think it was, it's nowhere near as messed up as things were then. The economy was in horrible shape. There was a massive recession, the oil embargo, oil prices skyrocketing. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was quite bad. You know, it's, it's, it's amusing that people are saying, you know, everything is bad, but stock markets are at all time high bond market, all time high. People are, the wealth in America has never been higher. The po so-called poverty in America is a joke. You go to a country with real poverty, like India, okay? That, it, it, let's see, talk about real poverty. There's no poverty in America. That's a joke. The poverty, poverty stricken in America live like freaking kings compared to six, seven billion of the population out there that's eating dirt because U.S. dollar hegemony, for the most part, you know, we're the beneficiaries, you know, yeah, of no the cantillion of the, the, the cantillon effect. If you get dollars first, you benefit over everyone else in the same position and not getting dollars first. Right. So that plays out with at the highest level. So you have extraordinary, you know, trillion dollars of wealth created during COVID crisis at the top. That's all just printed money. And, um, but you know, there, there is now, um, a realization that, that there is now a sea change. There is a, there is a big change coming. I think 2021 is when we see that change. I mean, the, the millennials and the Gen Z, when I talk to millennials, man, they're super smart. And it's not like uh, the, the Gen X, you remember their, their health generation was like, uh, slackers. 
You know, they were like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Then millennials came along and they're like, oh, actually, we have, we're, we're totally digital. We've got Bitcoin and we're totally dissatisfied and we're a bigger demographic than the boomers. And so that that's, I think the millennials are going to, the year of 2021, the millennials are going to kick ass, I think, aided by Bitcoin. You know, when I look in the media space and I see guys like Tim Pool, Luke Rutkowski, you know, who are like disciples of Joe Rogan, and they've got huge audiences. They're totally sharp as a tack. You guys, guys in the Bitcoin podcasting space, they're all like super smart. Nick Carter is a freaking statesman. He, he know, he's like the Ben Franklin of, of uh, 20, 2021. He's not, this guy is sharp as a tack. So th- this, is, this is who's going to reshape everything with, with Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin gives you, it's got your back. It's got your back. No one's going to print more of it. One great thing about millennials too is that no other country has a millennial generation. Really, that that's why their demographics are so uh, upside down. Like the, the Japanese and the Europeans, they just they didn't have babies. Where the boomers actually had babies and and have a millennial generation. So that separates the U.S. for sure. That that's interesting. Well, um, that sounds good. You know, I support it. I support my local millennial. I support millennials. You know, I just turned 61 years old and I can tell you everyone is in their 60s is burying dead except for Bitcoin Tina. Uh, You know, in the Gen Gen X, except for Stacey Herbert, then nobody, nobody's interesting there either. Not until you get (laughs) to the millennials. Do you find the spirit of the revolution? Let's do it. That's awesome. Max, this is a great way to uh, to end the to end the show. Why don't you plug yourself and give your last word? Well, we got the Orange Pill podcast which is uh, we just launched it a few months ago and it's uh coming quite popular so you can follow that on twitter orange pill pod on twitter you can go to youtube and go to the orange pill podcast we've got i don't know sixty five thousand subscribers in the right right in the first few months uh we got the new orange pill daily dose if you go to orangepilldailydose.com you can subscribe and get the daily dose uh which has uh, links and stuff into it and we're doing that with Swan Bitcoin, uh, which I love Swan Bitcoin. They're very easy on ramp. Get your Bitcoin, do the dollar cost averaging. Also, if you want to get your Bitcoin off, it's easier. Like I try to get my Bitcoin off Cash App to put it in my uh, Casa wallet. And the limits are severe, like $2,000 a day. You know, that doesn't do it for me. With uh, Swan, I can I can get it all off in a jiffy, put it in my Casa wallet, got my multi-sig. Now I'm ready for the revolution. I'm ready for the Michael Saylor to give the signal. Charge! You know, we're ready to go. Uh, so all that's going on. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, orange pill, orange pill. Um, and we're coming out with some uh, fashion line, the orange pill fashion. So uh, it's going to, you know, you can live the orange pill lifestyle. Because we already were red-pilled. I was red-pilled already, long ago. Orange pill is the lifestyle. It's the lifestyle of knowing, of being relentlessly optimistic, as Stacey uh, has has said. (laughs) 
Awesome. Awesome. Again, perfect way to end the show. Thank you so much again, Max. Um, you guys can find the show at FedWatch. Make sure to go to the FedWatch feed. That is the only place to get this show. Make sure to follow me at CK underscore Snarks and at Bitcoin Magazine. And make sure to follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Check out Bitcoin and Markets as well. One of the best podcasts in Bitcoin. Thanks a lot and have a good one. Stay optimistic. Yeah, baby. Love it. Thank you. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.